We often are fascinated by the last words that a person says before their dies. And this is particularly to a famous people. And we, we have this sense that when someone knows they're about to die, their final words should be filled with great significance or be something profound. Well, that's not always the case, of course. There are those people who say their final words and they don't know they're going to be their final words because their life just ends suddenly and they're not prepared. So final words sometimes are profound, sometimes they're humorous, and sometimes they're just words. But I was doing a little study of the last words of some famous people and ran across some interesting things. For example, there was the great jazz drummer, Buddy Rich. I don't know if any of you are into jazz. I'm into jazz. Buddy Rich was a great jazz drummer. Well, he was being prepped for some major surgery, and the nurse wanted to find out if there was any, any medications that he might be allergic to or react to, so she said, is there anything you can't take? And he said, yeah, I can't take country music. <laughs> and interestingly enough, those turned out to be his final words. Hmm. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, died at age 71 in his garden of a heart attack, and he turned to his wife and he said, you are wonderful. And then he collapsed and died. Stephen Jobs, the founder of Apple, was drawing his final breaths and I believe it was his sister that was with him and she said his final words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. I wonder what he saw. Hmm. And there are some final words that point us toward God. William Henry Seward was a governor and a senator and the U.S. Secretary of State during the American Civil War. And his last words came right from Scripture. He said to the people around him, love one another. So all of that got me thinking about last words, and in particular, the last words of, Ju of Jesus. Now, Jesus is unique because he has more than one set of final words. He has the final words that he spoke from the cross. And humanly speaking, that should be it. But he conquered death and rose from the grave and he hung around for about 40 days and then he spoke his second set of final words. Those final words that are spoken after the resurrection when he's in bodily form and then right before he returns to heaven. That's what we're going to find here this morning. And here's the setting for those final last words of Jesus. He is about to leave his disciples for good. And he wants to be sure they understand that the work of the kingdom of God, work that Jesus himself initiated, is going to continue after he leaves. Everything doesn't come to a screeching halt. And so he's going to re reinforce some of what he previously told them. While he was alive, he said the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to come in a new way, and he's going to come with power, and he's going to come with a specific purpose in mind. And he told him that previously, and in his final words, he tells him that again. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to be historic. It's going to be transforming, and the disciples better get prepared. So Jesus tells them to do the one thing that most of us absolutely hate to do. He tells them, Wait. Wait and get ready. 
You need to be prepared because the Holy Spirit is going to come and invade your lives and invade this world. And that's what he tells them in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let's take a look. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart for Jerusalem, but to wait. To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the the words that I just read were written by Luke, a first century physician and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul on many of Paul's missionary journeys. Luke made two contributions to our Bible. One is the book of Luke, which, which carries his name. That's the biography of Jesus he wrote. And then the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church. And both of those books, as we see here, were written to a friend of his named Theophilus. And I just marvel at that. Luke was so eager for his friend to know the truth about Jesus that he wrote two lengthy books. Luke invested a huge amount of time and energy so that his friend Theophilus might know the truth about Jesus and might choose to live as a follower of Jesus. And as I ponder what Luke did, I find myself wondering, do I have that same kind of concern for my friends who are far from God? What kind of time and energy and effort am I willing to invest so the people I know who are spiritually adrift might find their way to Jesus? I think that's something really good for each of us to think about. Well, here at the start of the book of Acts, Luke reminds Theophilus that Jesus is unique because Jesus conquered death. And that's not just wishful thinking, it's a fact because Jesus rose from the grave and then he appeared to his followers at various times for 40 days. And Luke wants us to know that the message of the resurrected Jesus was the same message that he proclaimed during his life. The message is building the kingdom of God. And Jesus may be ready to leave the earth and return to the Father, but the work of the kingdom is not over. Therefore, Jesus is going to equip his followers to carry on after he's gone. And how will he do that? By filling them with the power of the Holy Spirit. However, it's not quite yet time for the Spirit to come. So Jesus tells the disciples to wait. A big announcement, it's coming, but wait. Now we're not told how the disciples responded to that, but I think they might have felt a touch of impatience. I know I would have. The disciples don't live in Jerusalem, but they've already been hanging out there waiting around for 40 days. I suspect they might like to go home. And Jesus says, stick around and wait some more. 
Why is it that God so seldom operates on, uh, on our timetable? Why does he like making us wait for important things? Well, it's not just to test our patience. God makes us wait because he often has larger purposes in mind, and I think that's true in this case. First, the coming of the Spirit is not something to take lightly. When the Spirit comes, Jesus says He's going to baptize His followers, which means that people of faith are going to be immersed in and enveloped by and filled with the Holy Spirit from God. For the first time in human history, every believer will be personally connected through God, with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's mind-boggling. Part of God, part of the creator of heaven and earth, lives within every follower of Jesus. Wow. I, it's a reality for us, but I don't know if we fully understand that. I guarantee the disciples didn't understand it. So it's good for them to take some time to wait and contemplate what this is going to mean. So that's one reason to wait and prepare. Here's another reason to wait and prepare. Unfortunately, they're not yet on the same page with Jesus. As Jesus is about to explain, the Spirit is coming with power to equip them to be witnesses for Him everywhere they go. But they have a different agenda. Let's look at the conversation that happens next. So when they had come together, that's the disciples and Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this question the disciples ask highlights a core human problem. When it comes to God's plan for the world, his priorities are pretty clear. Yet far too often, we try to substitute our priorities for His. And that's precisely what happens here. I mean, think about this. Jesus has spent three years talking about the kingdom of God. He explained the values of God's kingdom through His Sermon on the Mount. He told numerous parables to describe what life is like in the kingdom of God. He made sure people know that the kingdom is both a present reality and our future hope that God's kingdom encompasses heaven and earth both now and for eternity. God's kingdom transforms people and cultures and communities and is the only hope for human beings in this broken world. And after hearing about this for three years, the disciples still don't get it because they're steeped in a worldview that places their nation at the center of God's purposes. And to them, nothing is more important than for Israel to regain its independence from Rome. So their question about restoring Israel is a symptom 
of an age-old struggle. The tendency of people everywhere to sometimes place nation ahead of God's kingdom. And yet as the disciples eventually will learn, God's kingdom encompasses all nations. Now this question from the disciples also is a symptom of another age-old human struggle, and it's our tendency toward nostalgia. As we get older, it's ever easier to think that the best days are behind us and that the future ought to look like our idealized memories of the past. And these men want Israel to be like it was in the glory days of long ago. And yet God doesn't want His people to be anchored in the past. He wants us to learn from the past and to trust Him with a sense of expectation for a future that might not look like the past. And this means we need to live by faith and to trust that there will be good days ahead. To not live as if the best days always are in the past, but to trust that there can be and will be good days ahead as God God's plan unfolds for us and for His church and for His world. And that's why in response to this question, Jesus basically says, hey guys, you're asking the wrong question. The Holy Spirit is not coming to restore the kingdom of Israel. The Holy Spirit is coming to build the kingdom of God. The Spirit is coming to help the disciples be witnesses for Jesus among people who are just like them in places like Jerusalem and Judea. The Spirit's coming to help them be witnesses for Jesus among people who are not like them in places like Samaria and in every region of the world. And this is a radical message because the Jews, like most people, and often like us, we draw boundaries around our relationships. There are people in places the Jews deliberately avoid. That might be true for you and me, too. And yet Jesus wants them to know that when the Spirit arrives, believers are going to be equipped to share the message of Jesus with anyone and everyone in every conceivable place. I wonder if we realize just how disruptive this is. When the Holy Spirit invades the world, He's going to break down all kinds of social and cultural and relational and language barriers. Here's what this means on a personal and practical level. Because the Spirit lives within you and within me, He can empower us to become concerned for and to care for and love even people that we might naturally be inclined to dislike. The Spirit can empower us to overcome our prejudices, whether they are ethnic or racial or socioeconomic. With the Spirit's power working in us and through us, you and I can build relationships with people who are not like us. 
We can become friends, good friends, with people whose morals are different than ours, with people whose politics are different than ours, with people whose lifestyles are different than ours. And in all of those relationships, the Holy Spirit can empower us to speak and act in ways that are gracious and loving and merciful so we can help these people learn about Jesus and be drawn into the kingdom of God. God's plan is to work through Spirit-empowered believers to increase the citizenship of the kingdom. And the disciples don't know it yet. But 10 days from the time Jesus speaks to them, on the day of Pentecost, they're going to begin to see all of it come true. On that day, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's going to invade their lives and invade their world, and it's going to initiate a spiritual revolution. And it's a revolution that will empower believers to carry the message of Jesus from Jerusalem into the very heart of the Roman Empire in just 30 years followers of Jesus are going to embark on missionary journeys to the farthest reaches of the known world and all along the way people will be changed and communities will be changed and the kingdom of God is going to grow by leaps and bounds. And we know it's true because the life-changing impact of spirit-empowered witnesses is recorded for us in the New Testament. Yet it doesn't end there. What happens in the New Testament happens again and again and again throughout human history, wherever and whenever people embrace the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit within them. And there are places in our world today, particularly in certain regions of Africa and Asia, where the Holy Spirit is sweeping through people's lives and transforming not just individuals, but entire communities as the kingdom of God extends its reach. And that same thing can happen through us as we learn to rely on the Spirit's transforming power to help us live as vibrant and compelling and loving witnesses for Jesus. There is a revolution that will be started on Pentecost, and oh, is it going to be huge. And that's why Jesus tells his followers, you must get ready. You need to be prepared because you're going to be transformed by the Spirit in a radical way. So Jesus says that. And then what does he do? He leaves. He's gone. He returns to heaven. These are his last earthly words. And in these final words, Jesus leaves no doubt about the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to empower followers of Jesus to be witnesses for Jesus. That's what he says. 
And what's so tragic is that over the years, Christians have lost sight of these last words of Jesus, and instead, we argue and fight over the role of the Holy Spirit. Some Christians teach and believe that the Spirit comes so we all can perform miracles and have supernatural spiritual gifts, and other Christians deny that the Holy Spirit has much to do with our lives at all. And churches even have split over the issue of the Holy Spirit. And that breaks my heart. And I think it breaks the heart of our God. Because all those disagreements miss the point of Jesus' last words. The overriding purpose of the Holy Spirit is to draw people to Jesus and increase the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And the Spirit does it by working through people like you and me. And that's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus promised before he went to the cross. And that's what he promised again right here in his last words before he returned to heaven. And Jesus' promise, the promise of the revolution of the Holy Spirit will be fulfilled on a holiday called the Day of Pentecost. Now, I have to imagine that these final words from Jesus are seared into the brains of the disciples because what he says is shocking. It's unbelievable. It is completely outside their experience and knowledge and worldview. And Jesus drops this verbal bomb on them and then he goes away. Is it any wonder they just sort of stand there (laughs) gawking up into heaven? What are they supposed to do? Well, they can do what Jesus told them to do. Wait. Wait and prepare for the Spirit who's going to come and turn their world upside down. So that's what they go and do. While they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they dinnered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Here's the key part. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So, so, the disciples stand there and they watch Jesus go away. And we need to remember that they've been hanging out there in Jerusalem with Jesus for 40 days. And during that time, he's appeared and disappeared and reappeared and appeared and disappeared. So they may not realize, oh, this is the final one. Now he's going away for good. And to be sure they understand, God sends these two men dressed in white, which is a clue that they're actually angels. They're heavenly messengers and they come with a specific message from God. Jesus really has gone away this time. Don't expect him back right away. 
Oh, oh, he'll come back eventually. But in the meantime, you have an overriding purpose, guys, to be faithful witnesses for Jesus, regardless of where you go or what you do. Based on what we know from church history in the years ahead, some of these disciples are going to be missionaries. Some will be pastors. Some will work in the marketplace. Some will be single. Some will marry and have families. Yet throughout the rest of their lives, whatever they do, wherever they go, they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to draw people to Jesus and build the kingdom of God. And it's just as true for you and me as it was for them. And we do not have to be in ministry to let the Holy Spirit empower us to do His ministry through us and to impact spiritually adrift people and help them find their way to Jesus. And so now because Jesus told them to wait, the disciples have some time to prepare for these, these dramatic changes that will be coming. And as I said earlier, we often get frustrated by waiting, but I think this time of waiting for them actually is a gift because they really need to process what Jesus just told them. They need some time to emotionally and spiritually prepare themselves. And how do they do that? They do it by praying. And they pray as a way to prepare because they know that prayer touches more than our minds. It touches our hearts and our souls. And they pray together because they know that praying in community breaks down the walls of our prideful independence and our isolation from others. Praying in community is encouraging and empowering and it deepens our connection with others and with God. Prayer is one of the best ways for us to spiritually prepare ourselves for whatever God might have in store for us in the future. And these, these people need to prepare themselves for all the reasons we've already mentioned, but there's one more reason they need to get ready. As we're going to see next week, when the Spirit arrives, He doesn't do it peacefully. He comes with power in a dramatic and even overwhelming way. And that's why I call the arrival of the Holy Spirit a holy invasion. The Spirit is going to transform them and equip them to transform their world by empowering them to be faithful representatives of Jesus to all the people around them. And so they wait. And they pray and look forward to when the last words of Jesus will come true. And they're going to in just a few more days on this holiday called Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is an annual holiday. It takes place every year, 50 days after Easter, which this year means it falls on June 5th. And so next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and we're going to take time to look at Acts chapter 2 and commemorate what God accomplished on that day. Now, for the disciples, as we just studied them there in Acts chapter 1, Pentecost is future. 
Thankfully, we live this side of that special moment, and so for us, what happened on the first day of Pentecost is, is history. It's already happened, and that means that the Holy Spirit's already come, and it means as followers of Jesus, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and He actually does live within us at this very moment. Here's the challenge, though. I think at times we take the Holy Spirit for granted. I think at times we don't yield to the Spirit when He gives us a subtle nudge to do a better job of loving our neighbors. The Holy Spirit might want to help us draw more people to Jesus and, and He'll gently push us to go outside our normal relational boundaries and, and we're going to push back because it's uncomfortable. And sometimes when we do interact with people far from God, we don't trust that the Spirit will give us the right words to say about Jesus. And so out of fear, we don't say anything. Or out of duty, we say too much. <laughs> no, nothing worse than a Christian who out of guilt is talking to an unbeliever and just sort of beats them over the head with the Bible. Whether we don't say anything or say too much, we're not being led by the Spirit. The New Testament tells us it's possible for us to quench the Spirit and to stifle His power and to inhibit His ability to work in us and through us. And when that happens, we will not love our neighbors as we love ourselves, which Jesus told us to do, and then we won't be effective at drawing other people toward Jesus. So while the first disciples needed to, prepare, excuse me, needed to pray and prepare for the Spirit's arrival, I think we need to prepare for a fresh appreciation of the Spirit's power and purpose in our lives. And so this week, as we look forward to Pentecost next week, I think it would be a great time for you and I to ponder and to pray and to consider what does the coming of the Holy Spirit mean in my life and in our church's life today? Here's my suggestion. Pick a day this week, and on that day, set aside some extra time for prayer. And on that day, read this Bible passage from this morning. Read it over a few times. Ponder it. Think about its implications in your life. And then pray. And then pray some more. And ask God to prepare your mind and your heart to embrace the Spirit's role in your life in a new and meaningful way. I've already said, set aside some time on Friday, this coming Friday, when I'm going to do just that. Read this passage over again. Ponder and pray. What day might you pick to pray and to prepare, to prepare for a fresh understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what He wants to do in you and through you to help spiritually adrift people find their way into God's family. It's sad when we take the Spirit for granted 
because he is one of the greatest gifts we've received from God. He comes into our lives to transform us, to help us live by faith, and to help us transform our world for Jesus, and to help build the kingdom of God. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give each of us a fresh infusion of his power so that we can fulfill the purpose that Jesus has given to us, his church, to represent Christ wisely and well and to build the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would forgive us for neglecting his presence and his purpose in our lives. Pray that you'd forgive us when we, when we misunderstand what Jesus said in his final words and we argue about secondary things. And we ask, Father, for a fresh appreciation for the Spirit. Perhaps you might even fill us with your Spirit in a fresh new way. Please empower us to live by faith. Please increase our vision so we see more clearly the people around us who are wandering spiritually adrift. And Lord, as you give us opportunities, may we trust that the Spirit will empower us to know what to say and what not to say and when to say it. Oh, Father, May we be vibrant and compelling witnesses for Jesus. And Father, in our day, might you ignite another spiritual revolution like you did in the first century, one that transforms people and communities and builds the kingdom of God. Oh, Father, may we have a vision for that. May we understand the part we can play in that. And may we have the joy of watching the Spirit work in us and through us so that friends, family, coworkers, neighbors who are spiritually adrift might come to know you and have the joy of living as kingdom citizens. Thank you for giving us that privilege, Father. Please give us wisdom and faith and the power to make it true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.